Let me ask you, if you would, to open up with me to the book of Exodus and chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. This is now our 20th message on the book of Exodus. And the passage that we come to this morning is bizarre, uh, unique, strange. It's the kind of passage that if we were not committed to verse-by-verse preaching, I doubt I would have ever chosen to to speak on this particular passage. Um, It's it's difficult. It's mysterious. Uh, You read it and we wonder what in the world you're supposed to make of this. Uh, Some would say that in the entire book of Exodus, this is the most difficult passage to make sense of. And yet, as we have just heard, the Word of God is perfect. And the Word of God is true. And the Word of God, every part of it, is breathed out by God for our edification. And so, this morning we come to Exodus 4, uh, verses 24 through 26. Uh, Beginning with verse 24, what we have here is the account of Moses' trip back to Egypt. Uh, Moses is traveling with his wife Zipporah and their two sons. Uh, We have mentioned the birth of Gershom before, and there has now been a second son that has been born, whose name is Eliezer. So we have a family of four, and this family of four is headed back to Egypt so that Moses can fulfill this new calling that he has just received from God. His calling to stand before Pharaoh and demand that God's people be set free. Verses 24 through 26 tell us one encounter that Moses has on his journey back to Egypt. And then verses 27 through 28 tell us about a second encounter that Moses has on his journey back to Egypt. And then the final three verses of chapter 4 tell us what actually happens when Moses first arrives after 40 years back in Egypt. So this morning we're going to focus on verses 24 through 26 and see this first mysterious encounter that took place. And remember this is the word of God. So beginning in verse 24. At a lodging place on the way... The Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And so he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, one of the reasons that these three verses, this this passage, is so difficult to understand is that Moses' name is actually nowhere in this passage in the Hebrew. Neither is either of the names of Moses' sons. The passage in the Hebrew just keeps using the pronoun him, 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 him. And in each verse, we have to try and figure out who the him is. So in verse 25, uh, the ESV and other translations, probably the translation you're using, verse 25, probably adds the name Moses. 
But if you'll notice in the footnote, they will tell you that in the original, the name Moses is not there. It's still the word him. And so we keep having this word him, and we have to decide in every case. Is this him God? Is this him Moses? Or is this him one of Moses' sons? Here are some of the questions that that creates for this passage. Question one. Who was the Lord seeking to put to death? It just says him. Was it Moses or was it, as some argue, one of Moses' sons? Question two. Who did Zipporah touch with her son's foreskin? Since the Hebrew just says his feet, some people think she touched Moses. Some people think she touched the circumcised boy. And still others think this is symbolic language for placing the foreskin at the feet of God Himself. And then question three. What does this phrase, bridegroom of blood, mean? It's emphasized in this passage. In verse 25, Zipporah says it. And then verse 26, we're told that this incident is the origin of that phrase. And apparently this was a common phrase that people in Israel knew well. And this story is telling where that phrase came from. So what does this phrase mean? A bridegroom of blood. The the interpretations of this passage are all over the map. But thankfully, there are some aspects of the passage that almost everyone agrees upon. Uh, All agree that the Lord became angry because one of Moses' sons had not been circumcised. All agree that Zipporah circumcised the son and thus appeased God's anger. And all agree that this phrase, bridegroom of blood, must have been something significant to Old Testament Israel. So here is our plan. I'm going to do the best I can to explain how I understand this passage. And then what we're going to do is seek to learn together four lessons Four lessons that we can draw from this passage. So first, let me give you my own interpretation, my understanding of this passage. And let's do that by looking at verse 24 again. Verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. So who is the him in this passage that the Lord is seeking to put to death? Well, there are some that argue that this is one of Moses' sons, but I agree with the majority that this context demands that this is Moses. Uh, If you read the paragraph before this, it was Moses that the paragraph was talking about. Uh, The paragraph before this is God telling Moses what he is to say to Pharaoh. Moses has been the main central human character of all of Exodus 4. And so when we get to this verse, 24, and it speaks of him, the most natural understanding of the passage is that this him refers to Moses. And so we're told that the Lord met Moses and sought to put him to death. How did God do that? What was God doing? Well, we're not told. Maybe Moses was suddenly overcome with a terrible sickness or a grave injury. Some have proposed that the Lord used a desert serpent to to bite Moses. 
Some manuscripts say that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses, and perhaps Moses was caught up in a wrestling match, much like Jacob was a few centuries before. We don't know how the Lord was seeking to kill Moses. What we know is this. If the Lord really wanted to kill Moses, he would have done it. Uh, There was no real question here. Uh, This was never the plan to kill Moses. Rather, God has Moses in the grip of death, about to die, and he has him there for a reason. God has Moses held so tightly that it appears that only Zipporah can now act to save Moses' life. And so what does Zipporah do? Look at verse 25. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched his, Moses, his feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Now, how did Zipporah know that circumcision was the issue? How did Zipporah know that this was what God was angry about? We're we're not told. Apparently, God made it known in some way. But for what we can understand... Apparently, one of the sons had already been circumcised, and the other son had not. And we're not told which son had been circumcised and which one had not. But we are told what Zipporah did. She took a flint knife, and she did what Moses should have done long before. Namely, she circumcised her son. Then the verse says that she touched someone's feet with it. And what you need to know here is that almost all of the commentators agree that the word feet is a euphemism. It's a euphemism for genitals. Um, There are actually several places in the Old Testament where the word feet is used as a delicate way of referring to, to the private area of someone's body. And so Zipporah apparently took her son's bloody foreskin and touched it to, to someone's Private parts. This is a weird passage. I told you that up up front. So who was it? Who was it? Was it Moses or the boy himself? And commentaries are completely split on this issue. About half say she touched it to Moses. About the other half say she touched it to the circumcised boy. You might point to what Zipporah says. She says, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So that makes it sound like it would be Moses, right? She she touches Moses and says, You're a bridegroom of blood to me. She, She wouldn't call her son her bridegroom. The problem is that the word translated bridegroom can also be used to refer to other relatives. Uh, The same word is used throughout the Old Testament to refer to various types of kin. Later in Exodus, this very same word is going to be used of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. And so Zipporah's words could just as easily be translated, Surely you are a blood relative to me. And so that doesn't answer our question. Now, all that being said, I do agree with the ESV in most translations that this is probably referring to Moses. Zipporah has done what Moses should have done by circumcising their son, and she is now trying to save her husband's life. In just a few chapters, we are going to see blood put on the doorposts of houses so that the angel of death will pass by. Well, similarly, it appears that what Zipporah is doing is applying the blood of the foreskin to Moses so that his own life 
will be spared. And in verse 26, we see that God lets Moses go from the grip of death. What did Zipporah mean when she said to Moses, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me? Well, she might have been angry that she had to circumcise her son. Some, some read this as a cry of anger. You are a bridegroom of blood to me, Moses. But I think it's more likely a, a statement about the significance of this moment. Zipporah's husband was about to die. And now through blood, he is being given back to her. Moses will be from this point on a bridegroom of blood because it will be through blood that his life was spared and that Zipporah was able to keep him as a husband. Verse 26 seems to say that this phrase, bridegroom of blood, was widely known in ancient Israel. Maybe it was used of others whose lives were spared through the shedding of blood, which we know was a huge part of the sacrificial system. And so to summarize my understanding of this strange passage, number one, Moses should have circumcised his sons, but he failed to circumcise one of them. Number two, God was angry about this and sought to put Moses to death. Number three, Zipporah circumcised that son and applied the bloody foreskin to Moses and declared him to be a bridegroom of blood. And number four, God spared his life because of Zipporah's actions and the journey to Egypt continued. What can we learn from such a strange passage? I think I see four lessons Four important lessons that God is communicating to us here. And I'm going to suggest that each one of these lessons is increasing in importance. So each one of these lessons will be a little more important than the lesson before it. Lesson number one. Leaders of God's people must be faithful first in their own homes and with their own families. Leaders of God's people must be faithful first in their own homes and with their own families. This is Moses that we have here. This is the man that God is going to use to lead his people out of Egypt. This is the one man in human history that God appointed to come up Mount Sinai and receive his law and deliver it to his people. This is the man who is going to spend time in God's presence and will have to put a veil over his face because it is going to shine with such glory. Moses will be the one who appoints leaders in Israel. When the people of Israel have difficult cases, they're going to bring them to Moses and he will be the judge. Moses will give instructions. He's going to direct the nation of Israel in the way it should go. In the eyes of Scripture... When it comes to the Old Testament, there is no Old Testament figure who rises higher than Moses. Moses is considered the leader par excellence. And yet here at the beginning, he is already failing. Five times he questioned God's call on his life when God was speaking to him out of the burning bush. The fifth time he said to God, please send somebody else. God was angry then because Moses did not trust him. And now we see God angry again. 
because Moses is not taking his calling as seriously as he ought. Moses is failing to step up to the plate. How? By not making sure that he is being obedient in his own family first. We'll see in a few moments that this issue of circumcision was not a small matter. In the Old Testament, God declared that those who were not circumcised were themselves cut off from the people of God. An uncircumcised Jew was to be treated as a Gentile outside of God's chosen people. For a Jewish father not to circumcise his son was for that father to set that son on a path away from God into a life of darkness. Why had Moses not circumcised his son? Probably because they were living in Midian. Zipporah was a Midianite woman. And in that culture, the custom was to wait until puberty to circumcise. I think that sounds kind of cruel, personally. But this was also not what God commanded. Back in Genesis, God had commanded Abraham to circumcise his son on the eighth day. And that was to be the pattern for his descendants. Had Moses shown up in Egypt with his family and sought to become Israel's leader while having for himself an uncircumcised son, it would have been a scandal. It would have revealed hypocrisy in Moses as he called Israel to trust and obey God while he himself was refusing to do so. So see the lesson here for us. Those who want to lead God's people need to make sure that their lives at home match what they claim to be before others. It is no accident that the qualifications for pastors and the qualifications for deacons, both found in 1 Timothy 3, say that a man must manage his own household well if he is to be appointed for a church office. How a man leads his family can give you a picture of how he will lead others. More than that, A man cannot stand with integrity before others and call them to lead their families well if he is neglecting to care for his own. Both pastors, deacons, as well as any others who would serve as leaders must pay special attention to make sure that they're obeying God at home. These three verses represent a moment in which God was grabbing Moses' attention. This is a moment in which God was saying to Moses, what you are about to do is serious. The role you are about to take in my plan for my people is a serious role, and you need to get serious about it, Moses, and you need to begin with your own family. And how thankful Moses must have been for what Zipporah did in saving his life. Zipporah did what Moses should have done. And I find it very interesting that Zipporah is now the sixth woman in four chapters of Exodus who has saved Moses' life. By the way, we will not see Moses' family again for a while. It appears that when he arrives in Egypt, things heat up very quickly. And so Zipporah and the two sons are going to go back and stay with her father Jethro, where they will be safe until the Exodus event is over. Lesson two. Lesson two. The discipline of God is real, 
and an important way that He cares for His children. The discipline of God is real and is an important way that He cares for His children. Now, Herman, we who believe in Jesus Christ are no longer under the law. Christ has fulfilled the law for us. Jesus is our righteousness before God. And so when we sin, we no longer need to think in legal terms as if God's wrath is now upon us and we need to be re-forgiven. No, through Jesus Christ, God's wrath has been forever taken from us. God's wrath was born by Christ on the cross in our place. He is no longer our enemy. He is our Father. We had made God our enemy by rebelling against Him, warring against Him, but He has conquered us with His love. He has made us His children. And so, dear Christian, you need not fear for one moment the wrath of God, but you should fear your Father's loving discipline. Your father will never abuse you. Your father will never mistreat you. God's discipline is always fair and it's always designed to humble you and to teach you in the way you should go. But remember, God's great purpose is to bring you safely to heaven. God's great purpose is to make sure you don't fall away. And sometimes He will use painful or even scary trials to keep us humble and to help us see sins in our lives that are deadly and that could draw us away from Him. This was a moment of discipline in the life of Moses. And it was a scary moment. Moses' life seemed to be in real danger. But how needed this lesson was. How important it was for Moses to have this moment of discipline to wake him up to how important this new calling on his life really was. I would be willing to suggest that later in his life, Moses looked back on this moment and praised God for what took place. Other ancient writers tended not to write about their own sins and weaknesses. But Moses here is recording his own sin for us. Moses is telling us an experience from his life in which God disciplined him. Notice, if you've been reading so far in Exodus, Moses has not become a very likable character yet. He keeps messing up. He keeps falling apart. Moses is writing this, and he's not trying to get us to like him. He's trying to get us to see God and to see what God has done through someone like him. God is the main character of the book of Exodus. And Moses wants us to see how God can use discipline in the lives of His children for good. See, here is motivation for you and me to live a holy life. Let us not offend our God's great love. Let us not grieve the Holy Spirit. Let us not grieve the heart of our Father so that He comes against us with discipline, but rather let us live worthy of the love that we have received from our Father, worthy of the Savior who is our righteousness before God, worthy of the gospel we have received. And when discipline must come, let us not despise it. Let us never charge God with wrong. Let us never rant against Him in our prayers, telling God He isn't being fair. Just the opposite. When discipline must come our way, let us learn the lesson that God is teaching us. 
This often requires self-examination. Sometimes it requires the help of friends. It always requires holding the mirror of God's Word up to our own lives so that our sins can be exposed. But in moments of discipline, let us see our sin, acknowledge our sin, humble ourselves before God, and learn the lesson of the trial. And then in God's time, when it's best for us, the discipline will be removed. That The Scriptures give us two warnings about God's discipline. The Scriptures tell us not to despise God's discipline. And the Bible tells us not to despair under God's discipline. To despise God's discipline is to rail against it, to refuse to be humbled by it. It's like the child who fights back against the spanking, trying to run away, maybe even trying to hit back. Or alternatively, to despise God's discipline can be like the child who says, all right, I'll take the spanking, but I'm resolving in my heart it won't make a bit of difference. Refusing to learn the trial. Mount Hermon, whether our trials be short or long, whether our trials be mild or severe, let us be willing to endure them all and to receive them as gifts from our loving Father and to learn the lesson that He is teaching us. But then let us also never fall into despair. For the Father who sometimes disciplines us is the Father who always loves us. He is for us, not against us. He will uphold us, and His discipline will only last for a short time. And if there is weeping in the night, there will be joy in the morning. One day we will stand before our holy God, and we will have been made perfect. And we will be ready to enter paradise and to be with God forever. And oh, how thankful we will be for the loving discipline of our Father that kept us on the narrow path and brought us safely into the arms of Christ. So we've seen that leaders are to be faithful in their homes and families first. We've seen that God disciplines the children that He loves. But there's a third lesson. And I would suggest this one is even more important. Lesson three, the uncircumcised are excluded from the family of God. The uncircumcised are excluded from the family of God. Now let me be very clear. Yes, in the Old Testament, you had to be physically circumcised if you were a male who was going to be a part of God's people. But we learn in the New Testament that this was always a picture of God's spiritual people. The true Israel, the church in every age. And just as you had to be physically circumcised to be a part of God's people in the Old Testament, you must be spiritually circumcised if you are to be a part of God's true people, the church. In other words, the real issue here is not physical circumcision. The real issue is spiritual circumcision of the heart. In Genesis 17... God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you 
He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he and who, he who is born in your house, he who is bought with your money, shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. You hear God using a grim pun in that passage. Either you will cut off the foreskin or you will be cut off from my people. In the New Testament, we learn that what really matters most is not the circumcision of the flesh, but the circumcision of the heart. Physical circumcision was an outward shadow. It was a picture of a deeper reality. Moses himself, later in the book of Deuteronomy, having learned his lesson, is going to speak about this, as do the other prophets. And in the New Testament, it becomes crystal clear. Listen to these passages. 1 Corinthians 7, 19. Neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Galatians 6, 15. For neither circumcisions count for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Philippians 3, 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. In Romans 2, 28 and 29, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and His praise is not from man, but from God. The point of all these scriptures is this. It is only those who have been circumcised in heart who are the true children of God. Is that you? You say, I don't don't even know. What what does that mean? Put simply, being spiritually circumcised is just another way of talking about putting off the flesh. Physical circumcision is cutting off flesh. Spiritual circumcision is putting off the flesh. What do I mean by flesh? Well, I'm not talking about your skin. right? not telling you to take off your skin. Rather, the Bible uses flesh as a metaphor. Paul speaks in Colossians of putting off the body of the flesh. Just as you are physically covered in a body of skin, so spiritually we are covered in a mass of sin. Sin is pervasive. Sin touches all of who we are. Sin touches our thoughts and our emotions and our attitudes and our wills. Our flesh is all that we are before we come to Christ full of rebellion and pride and caring nothing for God's glory. And the circumcision of the heart, the circumcision that really matters, shows itself in that decisive moment when we repent and we turn and we choose to be no longer captive to sin, but give ourselves in faith to God. The circumcision of the heart is a gift of God's grace 
in which we suddenly hate our flesh and everything within us that is opposed to God. And we declare ourselves dead to that way of life and those attitudes and those actions. And we declare ourselves alive to God, ready to follow God and to love God and to walk in His ways. Put simply, the circumcision of the heart is being born again. It's being given a new heart that loves God and that wants to follow God. And so here's the question for you. Have you been circumcised in heart? When God first came to Abraham and started making him these amazing promises about a kingdom and a land and through you all the nations of the world will be blessed, what did God require of Abraham to receive those promises? What did he require first? Did he say, Abraham, if you're going to receive all these promises, you must be circumcised in the flesh. Is that what he said first? No. The first time God appears to Abraham, Abraham is a moon worshiper in Ur. And God says, go, leave your country, leave your kindred, leave your father's house. Go to a land that I will show you. In other words, the very first thing that God required of Abraham was faith. Abraham, will you put aside your unbelief, hear my word, and trust it. Turning from self to God, putting off the old way of life, entering into this new way of life, this is what was required. Abraham was circumcised in heart long before God ever said a word to him about being circumcised in the flesh. And Abraham was not the first. There were many people who were believers in the true God before Abraham, before the the instructions about circumcision. We talk about Adam, Eve, Abel, Enoch, Noah. I mean, these these were all uh, uncircumcised people, but they, they were circumcised in heart. They had put off trusting in themselves, and, and they were trusting the true God. God's true people throughout human history have always been those willing to put off the old man and to put on the new. And the reason God temporarily instituted the rite of physical circumcision was to remind Abraham's physical children and those who would join them of their need to be inwardly circumcised. If they would not trust their God, they would be cut off from Him. It also served as a picture to teach that all people, regardless of race or heritage or ethnicity, are either in God's eternal covenant of grace or out of it. And it all depends on one thing. Have you been circumcised in heart. So that's my question for you. Have you put off your old life? Have you entered into a new life of following Christ? And if you haven't already, I would plead with you to turn from your sins. And I would plead with you to start following the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the way and the truth and the life. If you are not born again, you will be eternally cut off from the love of God. And that's a scary place to be. We'll close with our final lesson. Most important lesson of all. Lesson four. We must have the blood applied if we are to be saved. We must have the blood applied if we are to be saved. 
Later in Exodus, we're going to see this. The people of Israel putting the blood of animals on their doorposts so that they will be spared from the judgment of God. And here in the same way, we have Zipporah taking the bloody foreskin, applying it to Moses to save his life. She calls him a bridegroom of blood because it is through blood that he is going to be spared. Friends, Jesus Christ is the ultimate bridegroom of blood. He shed His own blood that all who believe on Him will be spared from God's righteous wrath and brought into eternal forgiveness, eternal peace, and eternal joy. Let me put it this way. If you are here right now and you are an unbeliever, you are this moment in the grip of death. And God is against you this moment because of your sin. And if you were to die right now as an unbeliever, you would go to hell. Do you know that? Do you feel that? Dear unbeliever, do you sense the danger you are in? It is no small thing to have God against you. He is holy, and one day you will stand before Him and be utterly condemned, and it could be today. And you sit here this morning, and maybe you don't feel it, but you are in the grip of death, and what do you need? You need the blood applied to you. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was sufficient to cover every one of your sins and to bring you peace with God. But it is only by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ that what He did on the cross becomes applicable to you. We've used this illustration a thousand times. It doesn't matter if there's a cure for your ailment. If the cure isn't applied, you have to take the medicine. Jesus has provided the cure, but it is not brought to you if you will not turn from your sin and call upon Him to save you. If you will not trust Him and believe on His name, will you ask Christ to be your Savior? Will you seek to follow Him as His disciple? Dear friend, if you will do this, you will find that you are safe and secured in His arms. Through His blood, you will have peace with God. Would you do so this morning? Would you be baptized in His name and start a new life of following Christ? May we all look to Christ and find in Him grace and mercy and everlasting joy. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You even for the strange, difficult, unusual passages in Your Bible. We thank You how there are treasures there and how there is truth that our souls need. Father, we ask that You would help every one of us to consider our own private lives and family lives. Help us to be sure that we're we're honoring You there, first and foremost. Father, we ask that if there is a person in this room that does not know You, we ask, Father, that You would give them a new heart. Circumcise them spiritually, Father. Bring them to Yourself. Give them faith and and apply the blood of Christ to them that they will be saved. Father, if there's an unbeliever in this room who is comfortable 
in his or her unbelief. Oh, Father, would you convict them? Would you bring upon them the the, the grip of death that they need to feel to wake them up? And Father, would you help us who have been saved by the blood of Christ to be forever so grateful? Father, would you fill us with love and awe and wonder towards Jesus, our bridegroom of blood? Father, how thankful we are for him. How thankful we are for our Lord. Father, help us to think about these things today. Help us to talk about them with others. May these things become precious and deep and encouraging to us. And Father, would you bring us back tonight to to finish our study on repentance and to think about what it means to repent as a family and, and as a church and as a nation. Bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.